Good to see you today. If you have a Bible or you have a device with a Bible on it, I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 1 Thessalonians is a small letter. It's towards the end of the uh, New Testament. Um, a lot of times we're not even familiar with these letters of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So uh, you have my permission to look at the table of contents if you need to do that. All right. So go ahead and do that. Now this morning we are beginning a new series that, that I'm calling Endgame Facing the Future Without Fear. And I, I don't need to tell you that what we have been through over the last 12 months has been nothing short of extraordinary. I think we, I think we all know that with just the pandemic and then the lockdowns and then um, a very difficult election season and political season that has just worn, worn us all out even to this day. And then, and then not only that, but you just throw in the enormous amount of change that we are going through as a culture and as a nation, I've talked about that, but we're experiencing uh, political change, economic change, we're seeing religious change, which I'll, I'll mention in just a few minutes, we'll, we're seeing social change, there's just all kinds of change at, at, at up-tempo speed. And I think when you converge all of that together, what happens is it creates a great deal of uncertainty. And uncertainty can lead to fear and anxiety over the future. And so I was reading about the popular YouVersion Bible app. You guys have heard about this. And uh, according to the YouVersion team, they said their searches increased in 2020 uh, to 80%, to totaling 600 million searches worldwide. And uh, that was a record-breaking year for them. They said that the number one looked-at verse in the Bible in 2020 was Isaiah 41.10 that says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That was the number one verse in 2020 that people were looking to. By the way, it's a great one to memorize, so you should memorize it today. Now, uh, what was interesting is you look at some other verses that were very popular in 2020 as well. Philippians 4.8, Be anxious for nothing. And then Romans 8.28, all things uh, God works together for good. Now, it's interesting when you kind of consider those, you know, those realities, you, you really start thinking through, what are people looking for? And I think the answer to that question is people are looking for perspective. They're looking for assurance that everything is going to be okay. They're looking for security. They just want to know, hey, is this you know, are we going to be okay? That's, that's, the, that's the thought process. So, so then my question is this, where does security come from? Where does perspective come from? Where, where, does, where does assurance come from? And I would submit to you, church, that it comes from the Word of God. That there's a direct correlation between the Word of God and your faith. That the more intake of God's scripture that you, you have, the stronger your faith's going to be. The more you intake the word of God, the more security, the more perspective, the more assurance you're going to have. The less intake of the word of God, the less sense of security, the less assurance, and the less perspective you're going to have. Now, why is that? Because the truth transforms us. The truth changes us. It, it totally uh, makes us new people. And so, so I, would, I would say it like this, church, that if you will make the choice to build your life on the word of God, 
where you are, you are daily intaking and humbly receiving the word of God. It's going to change how you view the present and it's gonna change how you view the future. I'll even press it further. It's gonna change how you feel. Instead of being gripped by fear and worry and anxiety, your life is gonna be filled with faith, hope, and love because you are building your life on the word of God. I think you could say it like this. I think, I, I think another way of saying it is this way. The spirit of God uses the word of God to make us like the son of God. That's what he does. That's how powerful the truth of God's word is and, and it changes us. Now, this morning we're, you know, we're beginning in this series in 1 Thessalonians and I wanna just kinda share, give you a little bit of background on this letter because it's not as familiar, I, I think, for most Christians. I think when you look at these two letters, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, they emphasize two different perspectives. On one hand, they both put a laser focus on the future, enabling us to see glimpses into the future that God has for us. He, they, they enable us to really see what God has in store for us in the future. But they also put an emphasis in the here and now. So you've got this dual focus going on in these, these small letters. And so I think the message that the Apostle Paul wants us to understand is that we need to be fully engaged in the here and now. We need to be fully present in the here and now. But we need to be focused on eternity and on the future that God has for us. I've mentioned this in the past, but do you know in, in the letter to the first Thessalonians, the first, um, the, letter to the, the first letter to the Thessalonians, every single chapter, five chapters, Paul mentions the second coming of Christ. Isn't that amazing? So you got this dual focus going on. And so that's what I want us to do in the coming weeks. Now, if you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible, let me just lay it on you, okay? Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. His first coming, he came as a servant. His second coming, he'll be coming as king. And there's gonna be a day when he will roll back the sky like the cover on a cup of, a cup of ramen noodle. And, um, and uh, we're gonna see him. And he will return and he will reign on the earth. And if you know and love Jesus, it will be a day of absolute joy. If you don't know and love Jesus, it will be a day of absolute terror for you. And so what he's going to do is he's going to dissolve this present earth and present heaven and he will commence with a new heaven and a new earth. Now this is not some side doctrine, okay? This is not something, you know, we just kind of worked into it. It is all over the New Testament. I, I would say that the second coming of Christ is a theme that you will see runs all the way from Matthew to Revelation. It's a thread. Not, it's not a thread. It's a rope that you see all the way through the New Testament. Read the New Testament yourself. Get a notebook and pen and mark how many times there are these allusions and, and directives about the second coming of Christ. I think what the New Testament writers are doing is they are encouraging their readers with security and perspective and assurance for the future by pointing us to the coming of Jesus Christ. So really the question is this, what is the end game for Christians? Well, it's very simple. We win. We win. More specifically, Jesus wins and he shares his victory with his sons 
and daughters with all of us. Isn't, isn't that amazing? There's going to be a day, church. There, there's going to be a day when his victory is, is secure and his victory is apparent and his victory is real. And so what that means is this. It doesn't matter what happens to you tomorrow. I mean, if you get the, the cancer diagnosis tomorrow or you get laid off from your job tomorrow or, or there's some relationship strain in your life, some problem, some, some difficulty, you're like, I don't know how to get through it. You know what, church? It's going to be okay. You know why? Because in the end, we win and we're on his side. Now, we'll be talking about that in, 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 the, in the coming weeks, but I, I just am trying to kind of whet your appetite for what this letter is about. Now, let me just, let me just tell you a little bit about this letter specifically. I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but you know, the Apostle Paul was a church planter, and he took probably three to four different missionary journeys all over the Mediterranean world, and he would go to influential cities, and he would start a church. He would plant a church there, and so he picked Thessalonica, which was, um, which is today the second largest city in Greece and he went there as a, as a major center and started evangelizing and started planting a church but it, it started to get hot there the persecution did so the apostle Paul had to flee the city and you can read about that in Acts chapter 17 because that's background to to this letter and so he he fled from Thessalonica. Later on, he was able to send his assistant Timothy to check on the church to see, see how it's doing. Timothy made his way back to Paul, gave him a report, and then he commenced with uh, this letter to the Thessalonians. So what I want us to do today is I want to read the first chapter. It's, not, it's really not that long, and so I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God today. So Paul writes this. He says, uh, Paul... Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in, in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. You may be seated. Now, what Paul is doing in this first chapter is he is really just kind of recapping how these folks came to Christ. So these are young Christians, they're young in their faith, and he's doing just kind of a review of how they came to faith and Christ. And I think really the point of the passage is this. I think it, it kind of answers a question. How do you know you're a Christian? 
How do you really know that you're a Christian? How can you say with confidence, I'm a Christian, and not even waver in that confidence? I think that's the point of this entire chapter. I think it's the point of why he was writing. I think there are a lot of us here today, if we were honest, we kind of doubt that sometimes. You know, sometimes we struggle or sometimes we're going through a difficult time and we just, you know, it feels like God is just a million miles away. And so we just kind of question our own faith. We question, am I really a Christian? And then there are other days when you feel so close to God and, and so it's just kind of this roller coaster of being up and down and all around. And so, and so we have this question deep down, you know, am I really a Christian? I think he answers that question. And I want to just share with you three ways that you can know you're a Christian just right from this first chapter. Number one, three ways you know you're a Christian. You know the gospel. That's how you know you're a Christian. You know the gospel. Number two, you know the power of the gospel. And then number three, you know the change that the gospel brings. All right, so let's, let's talk about those three. First of all, you know the gospel. Look with me at verse four. Notice what he says to them. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Now, you notice he mentions that word. He mentions the word gospel. What is interesting about that word, if you were to, you know, if you were to kind of keep reading in First Thessalonians, he mentions gospel again in, in chapter 2, verse 2. And then in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he, mentions, he calls it the gospel of God. And then in chapter 3, I think maybe verse 2 it is, he calls it the gospel of Christ. And so what he's talking about is he's talking about the gospel. The gospel came to the Thessalonians. One way we know we're Christians is because we know the gospel. Now, the question is, well, what is the gospel? We use that term a lot. Maybe, hopefully, by now you know what it means. Uh, But just in case you don't know what it means, uh, the gospel very simply is this. It's the message of what God has done in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. It's just a message. It's the message of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. In other words, another way of saying it would be this way. It is the good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. If you want me to simplify it even even further, the New Testament often defines the gospel as simply Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. That's the gospel. And so the gospel, it really is the core message. It's It's a set of ideas, if you will. It's a set of truth assertions. And and so it's this message that that God created us for his glory. And we rejected God and we rejected that glory. And that rejection of God and rejection of his glory caused a separation between us and God. And so God in his love sent his son Jesus to redeem us and restore us back to his glory. That's the gospel. That's the message of it. That's what it's been for 2,000 years. Now, church, listen to me, okay? The gospel is not, if you follow Jesus, you're going to live your best life now. You'll hear that in some churches, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not, follow Jesus, and he's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, follow Jesus, and, you know, we can change the world through, through love and social justice. That's not the gospel. 
So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is this, you were not changed because of the preaching of morality. You were not changed by the preaching of love. Why? Because love and morality in and of themselves are not the gospel. Does that make sense? And, and, so, and so that's what he's trying to say is there's been, there's been a dramatic difference in your life because you know the gospel. You know the message of God you know, to all the people of the world. Now, I mentioned a little bit earlier that we're, we're going through a, a, a great deal of change right now uh, in our culture, uh, not only here in the United States, but all over the world. I mean, things are just changing so fast. One of the ways, one of the changes that we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of religious change. And part of that is a movement in the United States called the progressive church right now. Uh, it's often titled progressive Christianity. And it's a problem because it is, it's popping up in communities and cities uh, far and near. And the problem with it is this, uh, progressive, the progressive church distorts the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, and so part of the message of progressive churches is that they, they have a low view of Jesus. And they present him as a moral example. He's just a moral example. Another problem with progressive churches is, is they, they really downplay, they really downplay the word of God. And so their message is the word of God is just simply a human response to God. It's human. It's a human book. And what I'm here to say is it is, in, it is an inspired book. It is a God-breathed book. It is God's response to us is what it is. It's a revelation of his love to us. Progressive Christianity also downplays sin and the nature of humanity. And so what they'll say is they'll say society is evil, but individual people are good. And what Christianity says is we are all loved by God but we're fallen and sinful. Now, I share this with you because I want you to be aware of it. I want you to be aware that progressive Christianity is not Christianity because of the distortion of the gospel. Part of why I, I, I talk about this week is this was a great week to bring this up because the new United States Senator from Georgia, his name is uh, Raphael Warnock, he tweeted out an interesting tweet right after Easter this week. And I, I just want to share the tweet with you because he, he is the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and he is a progressive church pastor. And I want you to, just, I want you to see what he tweeted. He says this, and I quote, the, the meaning of Easter is, is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? That's an impossibility Jesus Christ is ultimate reality. You can't transcend that. But notice what he says. Whether you're a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Now, we need to be helping others. We can't save ourselves. That's, the gospel is God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Now, to be fair, he, he did delete the tweet, but his sermons are full of those 
those kinds of messages. They are distortions of the gospel. I share, I share it with you today because ideas matter and we live in a society filled with different ideas. And I want us to understand with great clarity what the truth of the gospel is so that we'll recognize a counterfeit when it comes along. Does that make sense, church? And so part of why I preach the gospel every single week, the, the reason why I share it with you every week is so that you can know truth from error. So that you can see you can see the glory and the message of the gospel because it's, it's the gospel message that saves us. You know, Graham, Graham Keith was the longtime treasurer of the Billy Graham Association, the Billy Graham um, Worldwide Evangelistic Ministry. And he was in an elevator with Reverend Graham one time. And another man walked inside the elevator with those two and he immediately recognized Dr. Billy Graham. And he said, he said, he said, you're Billy Graham, aren't you? And Billy Graham said, yes, I am. And uh, the man said, you are a great man. And you know what Billy Graham said? He said, uh, he said, you know, I'm not a great man. I just have a great message. I just have a great message. That's it right there. See, the message of the gospel is this, that, that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you know you're a Christian because you, you know the gospel. But secondly, you know you're a Christian because you know the power of the gospel in your life. Look again at verse 4. Let me show you what he says. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. You see that phrase? Our gospel came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, what he's saying is this, that there are words to the gospel. There is, there's a message of the gospel, but it's not just words and it's not just message, it's power. So there's a horizontal aspect where someone else tells me the words of the gospel. They share the words of the gospel with me. But there's also a vertical piece of this where those words are accompanied by the Spirit of God working in my life, revealing the power of his presence in my life. And so you know you're a Christian because you understand the gospel, but you also have experienced its power in your life. Let me show you Romans 1.17. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now notice this, he doesn't say it brings power. He doesn't say it results in power. He, he doesn't say it leads to power. What does he say? It is the power. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. This is another, another kind of uh, insight into the gospel. In their case, the God of this world, that, that's the enemy, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And what he's doing there is he's calling the gospel the light of the glory of Christ. He's calling it the power of the glory of God. 
Now, let me, let me just kind of illustrate this because that's, that's so abstract and kind of ambiguous, but let, let me just make it real practical for us. You know, for, for many of you, you can remember how you became a Christian. You remember your life before you became a Christian, and you certainly know your life after you became a Christian, and you, you recall that story for many of you. And you might remember a time in your life when you were struggling, you were going through some difficulties, you sensed a need for God in your life, you sensed his absence, and and so you began seeking God, you began pursuing God, you began reading the Bible, talking to Christians, maybe attending church, and so you began seeking God. And there was a moment of decision, there was a moment where you took a step of faith and, and you trusted Christ to cover your sins, to forgive you of your sins. And you experienced a change in your life. And then as you grew, as you kind of walked in that change, you began to look back over your life and you began to realize that that you really weren't seeking God as much as God was seeking you. You begin to see how God was working in your life and orchestrating and bringing people into your life and, you know, helping and getting answers to questions. In other words, you begin to realize that it wasn't just you pursuing God. God was actually pursuing you. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He's talking about to the Thessalonian Christians, you remember how the gospel came to you in power. And that, that wording is like, it, he's, he's like, he's, he's saying it had legs, like it's a force, not like the Star Wars force, but it was, it had a force to it. It had a pull to it. In other words, it's kind of like you walk outside on a windy day, you feel the wind blowing on you. And that's exactly what he is alluding to here. The gospel has, has that kind of power and pull to it. And so it's really the presence of Jesus. I remember, I remember this as if it happened yesterday. I was in middle school. I, I did not grow up in a Christian home. Uh, we, we, went to Christmas, uh, we went to church on Christmas and Easter and, you know, once in a while in between. Um, that was kind of our family. And uh, I, I didn't really know, I didn't understand the gospel while I was in middle school. I was just like, just doing what, you're, what I thought you were supposed to do, you know? And so, um, and so I, I didn't really know anything about that. And so I, somebody gave me a copy of this book that explained the gospel. And as it began to unpack that, you know, that our sin separates us from God and we were created to know and walk with God and our sin separates us from God, but God loved us so much he sent his son to bridge that separation, to die on the cross for our sins. And church, I... Jesus was in the room that day when I read that. Now, I didn't see him, but I felt his presence there. And I knew, I knew he loved me. And I knew he was real. It was the first time I'd been in church before. I had never experienced that. And so the gospel came to me in power. And it was not, it, it was not me dealing with God. It was God dealing with me. Like, it's not just a warm fuzzy that you feel. I mean, we all have, I mean, after lunch, you're probably going to have a warm fuzzy. You know what I'm saying? You're going to have a quiver in your liver right after lunch. But so it, it wasn't just that. What it is, is when you start to experience the power of the gospel, you realize that the presence of God is pressing in on you and he's dealing with you. He's dealing with you on the direction of your life, the priorities of your life, the sin in your life. And that is exactly what he was dealing with me about that day. 
I knew as an eighth grader that I was a sinner. I knew clearly I needed a savior. I knew clearly that Jesus loved me and died for me. And I bowed my knee to him and committed my life to him. I think about Blaise Pascal. I love sharing his story. You know, he's the prominent mathematician and physicist and inventor and writer. And, you know, he grew up in a, in a Christian home. He grew up familiar with the Bible. He had accepted the Bible into his life. He understood, you know, the gospel message, but it was still a very distant thing for him. It was still just an idea. It was just a message, but it not, it, 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 he had not experienced the reality of it but he knew something was missing in his life. And so as he tells the story, he was riding on a horse and the horse violently threw him one day and he took a hard landing on the ground and he knew that that was a warning from God. And that night he, he says that all by himself in his room, he experienced his room flooded with light and he says, I knew that Jesus was the word. And then he wrote down, he wrote down, this message on a patch that he had sewn into the inside of his coat. And it says this, quote, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. A God of joy, joy, joy. This is eternal life that we may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I know him forever. May I not forget your word. Amen. Now, what is that? That's the power of the gospel. And it wasn't just some warm, fuzzy feeling that he had. He knew that his priorities had to change. He knew that his scientific work had to take a back seat to his relationship with God, and he was glad to do it. See, that's how you know you're a Christian. You know the, you know the gospel, and you experience his power. And oftentimes, God will use different things, like an illness, or a failure, or a relational disappointment, or a financial struggle, or falling off a horse to wake us up and get our attention that God is real and that he's really pursuing us. And then as you yield to the Spirit of God, you, you start becoming aware of the glory of the gospel of Christ. You know, that word glory, it just simply means weight. You start feeling the weight of the presence of God on you, and it's so good. And you come to this conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is, and he has an exclusive claim on your life. He really does. You begin to be aware, like C.S. Lewis says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. When you come to understand the gospel and the power of the gospel, you begin to see this is of infinite importance. And then that brings us to the third way. You know you're a Christian, and that is this. You know the change that the gospel brings. See, there's a change in your life. I was changed after I received Christ in my life. My parents thought it was, they thought, okay, this is a stage. But it wasn't. There was a change in Blaise Pascal's life. And you know that you're a Christian because there's a change, a transformation. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. The Christian life is a life of repentance and confession continually. 
but there's also a change. Let me show it to you in verse 9. This is just fascinating. He says this, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And notice this, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. That's the second coming right there. You see that? Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, did you notice the change that he is describing? What was the change? The change that he is, he is calling out in them is they turn from idols and they turn to Christ. That was the change. That, that you know that there's a change in your life at a heart level, not just behavior modification, but there's a heart level change because there's a recognition, I'm serving the wrong God and I need to serve Jesus. Now, do you know what an idol is? An idol really is just a thing loved or a person loved more than God. An idol is a thing enjoyed or a person enjoyed more than God. It's a, it's a thing or a person treasured more than God. So it could be a boyfriend, it could be a girlfriend, it could be good grades, it could be you know, approval of other people. It could be a hobby. It could be your kids. It could be money. It could be sex. It could be power. It could be any number of good things or even bad things in your life. An idol, an idol is just anything we value more than God. And an idol is something we look, we look to to save us, to give us salvation. We look for rescue. And so we we want to be rescued from unhappiness or insignificance or, or being, you know, feeling like we're unloved or unlovely. Or maybe we want to be rescued from the disapproval of others that we, we really cherish their opinion. So we look to these different idols to save us. And it's interesting because the Apostle Paul mentions, he mentions this interesting phrase at the very, the very last phrase the very last verse in the chapter, he says, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see that in verse 10? The wrath to come. Now, there's a sense in which we all know that wrath is coming for us. There's a, it's, it's universal. It's a universal experience. And what I mean by that is this, there's a sense in which all of us have that we don't measure up. There's, there's the awareness that we missed the mark and that there's something broken within us and we, we live with this desire constantly to prove ourselves. And it's just kind of universal. We have this, this sense of condemnation in our life. We, we, know, we know we missed the mark. And so as a result, we look for different things to rescue from that feeling of condemnation that we carry around with us. It's kind of like we have this imposter syndrome. And it's, we, we have this thought that, man, if people find out what I'm really like and what I really do, then they're going to reject me. If they find out the truth of who I am, then I'm going to be rejected. And so we look for a savior from that. We look to be saved from that condemnation. And so you really have a couple of choices. Jesus can save you from that condemnation or you can choose to pursue an idol, some kind of idol, whatever it might be. 
And the thing is, if you choose to pursue an idol to save you, you will always be serving. You will always be subject to that master. That idol will dominate and drive your entire life. But here's the thing. When you experience the truth of the gospel and the power of the gospel, it turns you away from idols and it turns turns you to Christ. Because you see, that's what he's saying here in verse 10. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, the fascinating thing about this is the gospel is, is this, very simply. Jesus is our substitute. And as our substitute, he took our place on the cross. He received the condemnation and the wrath that we should have received. And so when you contemplate that, your first question is, why would he do that? Well, the answer is in verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you. You begin to realize Jesus went to the cross because he loved you. That's the bottom line. That is amazing. That in Christ we are loved beyond our wildest dreams because he died for us. That in Christ we're significant because we're image bearers of God. In Christ we don't have to look for happiness in the world because we have joy in our relationship with Christ. And in Christ we have all the approval we need. We have his And so if God be for us, who can be against us, right? And so the reason why someone would want to turn from an idol and turn to Christ is because they realize the love of God. They experience firsthand the love of the Savior for us. That is the gospel. And so they don't look to the future with fear. They look to the future with anticipation. They eagerly anticipate the coming of Christ, verse 10, to wait from a Savior from heaven. Because that is the love of your life. You're waiting for the love of your life to come and consummate his relationship with you. And so it doesn't matter what tomorrow brings. Tomorrow may bring persecution, church. But it doesn't matter. You know why? Because we're loved by God. Tomorrow may bring a financial downturn. But you know what? It really doesn't matter. You know why? Because we're loved by God. Tomorrow may bring the worst possible diagnosis from a a doctor. But it doesn't matter Because we know he's coming, we know he wins, and we know he loves us. That is why we can face the future with confidence, with assurance, and with love. Because we know the love of God. That's the gospel. It changes you. And so you just just walk out of this room today and you just live with this life just basking in the glory of God of the gospel of Christ, the glory of his love for you. And it changes everything. And so his coming will be a great day because you know and love him. Because the gospel has come to you in word and in power and it's changed your life. And so I just want to ask the question, have you embraced the message of the gospel? Have you received its power into your life 
have you allowed it to change you? Because it is the one change that changes everything. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, give you praise and give you glory that your spirit is working even today in our midst. We thank you for the simplicity of the gospel message. We thank you for the clarity of the truth of your word. We thank you for the, just the mind-blowing reality of your love for us. That you know the truth about us. You know all the skeletons in our closet. You know our past. You know our sinful present. You know all of that. And yet you still love us. And we're reminded it was while we were still sinners that you died for us. And so, Lord, we just, it's just hard to even imagine that kind of love, but that's how much you really love us. And so, God, I just pray that your spirit would work to bring salvation today, to bring deliverance from the, the wrath to come. Lord, that we can be set free in every way because of your grace and your mercy. And so God, we thank you and we praise you. We just give you glory in all that you do, all that you've done. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.